Alrighty, so we shared my fourth home birth story in episode number 42, and now here we are going over the questions that you had about my postpartum in regards to newborn sleep, as well as managing an extended postpartum lie-in period, which is like a resting period. We talk about how and why my baby sleeps on her stomach, how I handle the rough nights, how my husband and I split up the nighttime baby care or not, and then we dive into the postpartum lie-in resting period, what it looks like, how many days, how to plan expectations with your family and friends, and if I have mom guilt about my lack of involvement with my other kids, which, spoiler alert, I do a lot. Hear all about it here on this part one of a part two series. Let's go. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. We are doing a postpartum Q&A episode with Dr. Morgan as she is fresh and deep in the postpartum season, and she has so much knowledge to share with us. So let's get started. We're just going to ask questions based on the different seasons or sections of postpartum. So first question, did you prolapse? Okay. Yeah. So this was from the birth. This was like a rollover from somebody asked from the birth. So I didn't prolapse. I haven't ever prolapsed, um, but prolapsing doesn't necessarily happen right immediately postpartum. It can happen weeks, months, years later. And actually like one of the common presentations for prolapse is postmenopausal women in their fifties and sixties. It still could come as like the main ideology. It could have come from a dysfunctional um, or traumatic birth or, but it's usually lifelong patterns of the way that we hold our bodies and breathe and have tension in our pelvic floor and in our abdominal and um, thoracic cavity pressures. So like breathing in a diaphragmatic way is not only just healthier and better for you, it's better for your pelvic floor and, you know, not wearing really tight bra straps or jeans or high heel shoes are things that are really common with women, but they actually all contribute to pelvic floor dysfunction. So, um, we actually have a whole episode with a pelvic floor PT in San Diego, Dr. Lauren, um, Mallory Snyder, and we'll link that in the show notes so you guys can listen to it. But it has a lot of different ideas for like prevention and what do you do if you do have a pelvic floor dysfunction. So I have seen pelvic floor PTs after my births um, to get some rehab done. And I think that's like an amazing idea. And it should just be part of the norm because there's a huge amount of pressure that you your body has carried for nine months. Whether or not you even had a vaginal birth, it doesn't matter. Cesarean mamas actually still really benefit because you still carried a big baby on your pelvic floor for nine, 10 months. And yeah. then also sometimes you do do some level of pushing before you have a cesarean. Also having a cesarean can change the way that your abdominal muscles function. And if you don't mm -hmm. heal properly, then now you're walking through the rest of your life <laughs> with this sort of, um, <clears throat> you know, different compensatory pattern that needs to be corrected. So that's a long winded answer, but I think that it's just something that we're not really recognizing of as like the rest of the world in the country or not, sorry, not the rest of the country, the rest of the world, like in France, you know, they're, this example is always thrown around that they're given 
as part of their universal healthcare systems too, like six or something sessions of pelvic floor PT as part of their, yeah, as part of their maternity care. It's like, well, duh, that would make so much sense. We should definitely all be receiving that. So anyway, that's my plug, but go listen to that episode. It's awesome. It's full of info. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Question two, how long do you stay in bed? Okay. So I know that we've mentioned this before, but if you're new to the podcast, (laughs) there is an idea that is found throughout the world, throughout ancient cultures and even current, you know, in Asian cultures and in a lot of South American cultures too, they take postpartum health really seriously. And there is a common timeline that is sort of agreed upon amongst all these different cultures, you know, without even talking and independently forming their own postpartum rituals of staying in the bed or having a lie-in period for the postpartum woman of 40 days. So that is a insane concept for American women to understand. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't have any of the support structures set up for that in any kind of a way. And people, even like loving people in your family and your friends will think that that's ridiculous and bougie and fancy and indulgent and selfish. And we have all kinds of weird narratives that we put around this. Um, So there's an adapted form of that that a lot of American midwives will uh, encourage, which is called the five, five, five. So it's five days in the bed, five days on the bed and five days around the bed. So in the bed, it's, it's not like you don't get up to pee or shower. Like you do, you do those things, but you're not going into the kitchen to get your own food. You're not putting in a load of laundry. You are like really trying to prioritize resting and healing and just nursing the baby. And for the first five days, it would be very easy to do something like free bleed. So you're going to have a level of vaginal bleeding, even if you have a cesarean. <clears throat> so you free bleed on a chucks pad, which is like those puppy pads free, mm-hmm. meaning like you are naked. You don't have a diaper on, you don't have a pad on. And so you're just sitting on top of a um, one of these pads and it's, it allows, you know, your vagina to get some air and you're passing the clots and things and just sitting there and it really anchors you to the bed. Or this is one of the reasons why people practice Lotus birth one of the components, there's lots of components of lotus birth, but lotus birth is where you keep the cord uh, attached to the baby in the placenta until it naturally falls off, which can take like, you know, four or five, six days, something like that. But it really anchors you to the bed because it's not like you can get up and walk around very easily when you have this baby and it's like a little (laughs) basket with the placenta in it. But my point here, my point here is that you really should not be moving very much at all for those first five days. Mm -hmm. Then it's five days on the bed. So it's like, okay, maybe you're like sitting up, you're doing, or, you know, I mean, you're still sitting up, in the other ones, but you're doing a little bit more activity. Maybe you're even like stretching on the bed or doing different things like that. Then the five days around the bed means like you're, you're maybe leaving the bed to go in other parts of your house and then you're coming back to it. And so that's kind of your anchor point. Like you're still resting a lot throughout the day and just sitting and being with your baby and breastfeeding and bonding and whatever. Um, But so you see how it's like a gradual process. So for me, I made it really clear to my husband and my family and friends here, like I want to fully be resting for two full weeks because I did that in my second postpartum and it was blissful and it was such a better experience for me. I was so much um, more replete and ready to take on motherhood of two and all these different things. And I did not do that with my third postpartum because I got really cocky and I was Mm -hmm. like, I know what this (laughs) game is about. And I also had a really hard time managing my at the time, not even two-year-old, um, because of their age gap, it was just really sad to me. I, I needed to be with my toddler, and but I pushed myself too soon, too fast, yeah. that postpartum, and it was not good. And so anyways, I am 
doing kind of an abridged version. So I did like two full weeks sort of in the bed. And then now I'm starting to branch out and around and like, I went on, I've gone on a walk, you know, and I'm 15 days, no, 16, 17 days postpartum. Um, I haven't done that much. Like I, and you know, we've had to get out of the house. We've had to do things because she had her tongue and lip tie released. She's had craniosacral therapy and we've had lactation. So I've had to leave the house. We've gone to the chiropractor. Um, but I do that thing. And then I immediately come back to the bed and I don't leave the bed at all for the next, for the rest of the day, because it's really tiring. Like it's, it's a cellular level of fatigue that I think is hard to explain to people until you've been there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I just, I think that postpartum issues would probably be so much better if we honored that as a society and we had the support in place so that women could do that. So Absolutely. I love that. And that means, um, you know, and that's hard because it means that you're, you're scheduling your childcare or your meal prep, or you're doing things so that you don't have to be the one to do that. And it's yeah. just, it's tough. Like that's not easy for everybody to do. Yeah. And I would just say, you know, if you find that that would be challenging or if you've tried to sit still for a few weeks before in the past and you just couldn't because you felt like I'm the one that has to cook, I'm the one that has to do laundry, my husband doesn't know anything, can't do anything, start preparing before you give birth for that. And if you have your own mind, because a lot of times it's it's not that there's not support, it's that the woman can't give up the control or the no, they need me. I'm I'm the only one who can or or they don't want to ask for support. They just can't ask for help and then allow right. that help to come in and like really just sit in it. It's hard. It's even hard for me. And I've been thinking about yeah. this for 10 months. Yeah, I, I would say like doing some like subconscious release work with practitioners who work in the subconscious, I think, because our patterns and our behaviors and our actions are so deeply rooted in that. And I just think if you find that that might be challenging for you, start doing that work early on so that you can actually get the support you need. Because typically it's it's more of that. I would say that people just like can't even, can't even imagine it or can't even accept it. So well, okay, and that's great. Yeah, really quick. One thing that I wanted to add to yeah. that is that one time I had this therapist in San Diego who helped me realize she was like, most people would be so honored to help if you ask them. If you said, hey, I really need your help. Can you please make me a meal this week? Or can you please come take my kids to the park? Or can you come just sit and like read my kids a book for 15 minutes so I can take a shower? Or like, I don't know, whatever. That most people are actually like totally willing to do that. And you know, we think that we're putting them out, but it's, a, it's part of human nature to feel like you're contributing and to feel relevant and to feel mm-hmm. um, as part of a whole and a system. And, you know, your grateful and gratitude uh, is is put upon them and then they feel good from it too. So anyway, it's just we have dysfunctional patterns for this and we have no cultural setup to think that this is something that's even worth prioritizing yeah. in American culture. So of course people are like, what are you talking about? You know, I like, I, there's lots of people that have had babies around the time that I have, and I'm watching them go to the store or the park or, you know, and it's like, and and it's not to shame anybody who's doing that because that's not my point. My, but my point is, is that the fact that we feel that it's like maybe normal or that even to celebrate the fact like, Oh, here I am. I'm out on the beach and I, with my three day old. And it's like, Whoa, okay. I mean, some people that's going to feel really good and nourishing for them, I guess I, that's possible, but we have to just like, let's just assume that this is similar to maybe having a big major surgery or something. And some people have had big major surgery. They've had a cesarean and it's like, guys, we need to just honor the fact that like, this is a 
this is an opportunity to really, really, really heal and rest. And there's honestly like no other chance in our lifetime like that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I know that way I yeah. could literally talk about that idea for a hundred years. So <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love it. Okay. So next question, you said you do vitamin K if symptoms are present, what are the symptoms that you would be looking for that would provoke you to give vitamin K? Yeah. So there are some circumstances where, um, I think that it would be a good idea to give vitamin K. So if you are going to like circumcise a little boy, usually they won't do it unless they have on record that you have given the vitamin K shot because there's going to be bleeding involved with that. So if I was going to do that, I, if my baby had some kind of a birth injury where they were like, maybe, you know, collarbones can break sometimes in babies when they're born, it's not very common, but if it was like a shoulder dystocia or something, and there was any kind of a damage like that, if the birth was really fast or if the birth was really, really slow and the baby, his head had been in the canal for a long time, there was bruising. If the baby was born in one of the presentations, like face presentation or brow presentation, um, they can have some different kind of bruising along in their faces. So, you know, and bruising means that there's been broken capillaries, there's been bleeding. And so anything really that would necessitate a situation where my baby could have had an injury or something going on, or if my baby was premature, um, I mean, there, this is not an exhaustive list. This is something that you can look up. I really love, and we'll put this in the show notes too. I love the evidence-based birth article about vitamin K. Um, and it does give some of the protocols for the drops, which are much more common in other parts of the world. Like in Australia, the drops are, are much more common than they are here. Here, we just give the, the shot all the time, but the shot is given intramuscularly. And on the box for the shot, it has a black box warning against giving the vitamin K shot intramuscularly. So... <laughs> you know, there's, and there's, there's, there, there's a risk to every single intervention that you do or you don't do. And this is a fine line dance that every parent has to make and making their choice and understanding the research. I feel like I'm in a different type of position because this is something that I know so well. Um, I know a lot of parents don't have the opportunity luxury to have learned or, or, dive so deep into different things. And so you're going to do what the best for you and your family is and how you feel um, kind of like not so as anxious, like whatever's going to make you feel less anxious. I have not felt like it was indicated for any of my births, although my son did get half of the shot because the dose is extremely high. So we opted to just do half of the shot at his birth, which I think of my births was probably probably the most indicated anyways, because he, it was so long and he was in the canal forever. And I pushed for three and a half hours. He was completely fine. But you know that anyway, that's just like the history of the way that I've done it. And I'm not to say that that is what everybody should do at all, because I assume certain risks that I'm comfortable with and other people are going to have to do it differently for them. Yeah. Those are good. Yeah. We'll, we'll tag that in the show notes, evidence-based birth article. Um, Okay. So do you check Billy Rubin and do you do PKY testing? Oh, PKU testing. Sorry. I'm oh, PKU testing. Yeah. So oh, I, do, okay. I do do the PKU testing. That's just the newborn metabolic panel. So it's a very easy little heel prick. Um, or actually my midwife does it in their toe. So that's a little tip because the toes bleed pretty easily. Sometimes the heels can coagulate, coagulate really quick. Um, but so I, I do opt to do that. Um, it tests for like 40 or 50 different 
metabolic issues, which would be very life altering Mm -hmm. and life changing for the baby and the family. And I just feel like what's the downside of that? I don't see any kind of downside besides the heel prick for the baby, which like, yes, okay, fine. But we're getting so much information. Um, You can do it while they're, while they're nursing, you can have them do the heel prick so that it's the least kind of invasive for the baby. Billy Rubin, I don't check Billy Rubin unless there would be like a need if my baby started to become jaundice, which Sunny actually had a little bit of yellowing of her eyes on at maybe like a week, which is a really common normal thing for them to have just for a couple of days and then it goes away. Um, but jaundice that's happening right after birth is generally much more pathological and needs to be checked. And that's just never happened to my babies. But if I needed to, I guess I would. It just hasn't come up. Yeah. Cool. Um, how many weeks was Sunny born? How many weeks old was she? 41. Or how many gestational weeks when she was born? Yep. 41 weeks on the, on the day. Okay. Um, <laughs> not that crazy. And I know people are probably like, why are you so <laughs> wigged out about this? And I'm, I'm not really, I think I, I was definitely wigged out about the prodromal labor because that felt like yeah. just a really hard thing to go through. And I just kept feeling like a ticking time bomb because I'd had fast births, et cetera. The going to 41 weeks, I was, it's just kind of interesting because it's atypical of my pattern, but I'm not, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this baby's so late. I wasn't really feeling like that. Um, it was just interesting how different everything was and how similar all my other three were in the way that their labor patterns started. So yeah. Like if you hadn't had the prodromal labor, it probably would have been totally fine that you went to 41 weeks. It's yeah. just like, it felt like labor was imminent at any moment. <laughs> for- yeah. For 10 days. It was yeah. so wild. It was so wild. <laughs> totally. Okay. So C-section recovery tips. That was a question someone asked. Yeah. Okay. So we have an entire episode about C-section recovery yep. and um, prevention and just sort of like healing tips as well. And so We'll link that in the show notes. Um, I won't go over it here just cool, because that'll be your best place to get that info- information. Yeah, you guys definitely need to check out the show notes because we've got lots of info for you. <clears throat> okay, so let's talk about sleeping. Why does Sunday sleep on her tummy? And how and do you swaddle? Like, Tell us your sleep thoughts, which I remember you telling me about tummy sleeping with my daughter. And I remember when I switched her and it was like our whole life changed. She was so happy. We were sleeping. She was sleeping. And I was just like, oh my gosh. But I was like a secret. Like I didn't want to tell anyone. (laughs) I know. Well, and that's a really um, hard thing. So disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. This is not medical advice. I'm not telling you what to do with your baby. The back to sleep program started in 1992. And prior to that, all babies were tummy slept. That's just like you were considered a bad parent if you didn't put your baby on their tummy because – they could choke and aspirate milk in the middle of the night if they were on their backs. And so that was kind of the thought. And then in 1992, we started this back to sleep program where it was like, nope, now you need to keep your babies always sleeping on their backs. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. One of the main things that I'm doing to support myself this postpartum is really focus on my postpartum nutrition. Because although we know that we can't control sleep when we have a new little baby anymore, the one main pillar of pillar of health that we can control is what we put in our mouths and what we feed ourselves. So that includes nutritional supplements like the supplements from Needed. My very favorite prenatal on the market and it is a postnatal as well. So that means it's a supplement that you take while you're postpartum and throughout your entire breastfeeding journey. So I recommend to my clients, patients, and friends to take the needed prenatal multivitamin for at least the first nine months postpartum or the entire time that you're breastfeeding to help support you nutritionally, give you all of the vitamins and minerals that you need and keep you really feeling healthy and good during 
this entire intense time of your first year of motherhood. So go ahead and visit thisisneeded.com and use code HEALTHYMOTHER to save 20% off of your first order. So again, that's thisisneeded.com using code HEALTHYMOTHER to save 20%. This is a big game-changing move for you as well as focusing on your postpartum nutrition so that you can feel really good, supported, present in your motherhood, and just enjoy your new baby. Okay, now back to the show. Some babies sleep on their back great. Uh, my three daughters have not. And so Gage, my first, he did, I didn't, it didn't even cross my mind to put him on his stomach ever. Um, but he was the baby that loved being swaddled and in his little docatot thing, you know, like a little snuggle me organic, like something that kind of had the bumper sides. So it sort of held him while he slept and he slept great like that. He was an awesome sleeper. Then my first daughter came around and I had her in a similar situation. She hated being swaddled. But I had her in the Snuggle Me Organic just not swaddled. And she gurgled and grunted and made all these sorts of weird noises all night long and was not sleeping. And I wasn't sleeping. And it was nine days of that. And then I think I put her on her belly for a nap. And she slept for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) And I was like, what is this? And I started talking about it with lactation consultants and occupational therapists and the myofunctional therapists, the pediatric OT, all the different – or PTs, the different people that I was – involved with and kind of starting to realize, you know, all, parents often have the, the experience that their babies love to sleep on their chests mm-hmm. and um, that the babies love to, and a lot of parents have them sleep on their chests all night long, which is actually not all that safe if we're thinking about some of the co-sleeping safe seven kind of principles. There's this like list of seven things that you should be following if you're going to be co-sleeping with your baby and Um, but there's a reason why babies like to sleep on their parents' chests because they're on their bellies and Mm -hmm. newborns have all of these proprioceptive centers all over the front of their body. So proprioception is a neurological, um, idea that relates back to their brain and their cerebellum and it helps tell their bodies where they are in space and, induces parasympathetic vagus nerve innervation. So it helps calm them down. And there's all these little center spots kind of all over the front of an infant's body. They're also, their spines are shaped like a C. So putting something that's shaped like a C on its back (laughs) is sort of like putting a turtle on its back. So there are a lot of physiological um, things about human infants that are in line with belly sleeping. And I can't say that that's right for everybody. And I'm not going to say that it is higher associated risk with SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, or sometimes called crib death, which is any kind of a reason that the baby just dies in in the night while they're sleeping um, or during a nap, I guess it could be under the first year of age. And the back to sleep program does tout that there has been less SIDS deaths. And it's hard to tell because it's like, well, is there a SIDS death because they're sleeping on a soft surface? Is there something that was covering their mouth? Is there this, that, and the other? There's so many different reasons. SIDS deaths are also increased though when the baby is in a separate place from the parents, when the baby is in its own room versus being in the either bed sharing or room sharing. That's, that's the safest place for a baby is in the room of the parents preferably closer to the parents than further away because their brains are set to regulate with their nervous system is looking for the constant cues of the care provider to regulate their breathing rate, their heart rate, their blood pressure, everything. So the carbon dioxide from our breath going out and onto them or near them 
helps trigger them to breathe and they will regulate and co-regulate with us. And it's their mirror neurons. It's literally like they're one of their strongest forms of staying alive. You know, they have some reflexes like the, to suck and swallow and to the breast crawl and to, you know, they have some of these reflexes that are associated with survival as well. And one of them though, is this neurological capacity for co-regulation. And so that is why they can, they sleep better when they're near us and they're healthier or safer, I guess, from SIDS when they sleep near us. Now on the belly is going to, is super controversial. Um, But that is, that is why I think that in a physiological explanation that they sleep so much better. Also, when you think of any other mammal, no mammals sleep on their back. (laughs) Like maybe a puppy rolls over onto its back for like a little while, but it's not like they sleep on their backs all the time. Um, Also, we don't have any kind of SIDS um, analogy or analogous kind of idea in the animal world where infants, infant animal mammals are just like randomly dying. So I think there has to be other explanations and it's difficult in research studies to account for all of these factors because you're not going to do a randomized blind or (laughs) double blind controlled study. They would not be ethical. So they're all retrospective or their data collection. Um, and there's so many factors that we're not accounting for about what's going on with the baby and, you know, what, what, what are they eating and what are the parents doing or not doing? Or, you know, it's just, it's a really touchy, difficult subject. Um, I'm sure a lot of people disagree hearing this right now and that's fine. You do what you're going to do. Uh, my baby sleep really great on their bellies. And so they, she sleeps. So the first night of her life, I did have her on her back in the snuggle me organic thing loosely swaddled and loosely swaddled is not safe either. Um, I say loose because it was just like, she could move her arms around a little bit and it was a crazy, not great night. <laughs> and I don't know why I didn't even think I forgot. I forgot that I do this with them, that they were right. They sleep on their back. And so then I woke up in the morning and I was like, Oh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we don't sleep on our backs. That's why. Okay. And so now every nap, every all night long, she sleeps on her belly and, you know, you'd be really shocked at how strong newborns necks are. She mm-hmm. can, and she has been able from the first day of her life. Again, she's not a premature baby though. I would not put a premature baby on their belly. There's a lot of different things that go into this for me because I know what's happening. She's breastfed. She's next to me. There's so many like boxes I'm checking in my mind that make this feel safe to me. And I'm, yeah. I can't say that for anybody else, but, um, yeah. So it's, it's works out way better for us. And I know a lot of people are tripping out. They're like, what is she doing on her belly? And we, sometimes I just think that we need to question these recommendations and yeah. make logical sense. Potentially, is there something going on else that yeah. is contributing? So yeah, there may be other things that had a heart sharp rise in the eighties that maybe contributed to SIDS too, that we aren't sure, you know, we don't have to name here in this uh, episode, but there's a lot of speculation about other factors contributing to SIDS, not just belly sleeping. Um, It was just like a correlation that got tied together. And there's just a lot of other factors. It's humans are complicated. Health is complicated. It's multifactorial research in the traditional sense of double blind placebo controlled trials wants so badly for everything to be one thing, because Mm -hmm. that's how pharmaceuticals are. Here's this one thing that we can test. That is not how health actually is. So double blind placebo controlled trials are actually not very helpful for a large majority of health recommendations. And Um, lifestyle recommendations. Yeah. It just doesn't work. So (laughs) uh, yeah. Anyways. Okay. 
This is great. So next question. So you kind of alluded to this, where she slept the first few nights. Um, is she yeah. just like, where is she sleeping? So she's sleeping in the bed right next to me. So, and I know there was another question that was like, well, where's your husband? Um, so <laughs> this is another kind of like controversial thing. I know a lot of people don't get down with this, but my husband and I have not slept in the same bed for months now because at the end of my pregnancy, I was a menace thrashing around in the bed trying to get comfortable and moving around in my hips. And I was taking up like the entire bed with all my pillows. <clears throat> and we are lucky enough that we have a, an empty spare room with a bed in it. And so he slept up there. I also, um, he can snore sometimes. And then he also moves his legs around sometimes. And so if he's going to at all contribute to my lack of sleep with having a newborn in here, I don't want it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't need his support in the night because I would rather him sleep well and be able to take care of our other kids in the day and do all the other things that he's doing for me than be up in the night with me just for solidarity. Now, with our first kid, he was. <clears throat> we had to triple feed. And so if people don't know what triple feeding is, it's where you breastfeed the baby, then you pump. And while you're pumping, someone else is, or you can, after you pump, you feed the baby that additional milk or you're, somebody is feeding them some additional milk while you're pumping. And it's this whole system. And we had to use something called an SNS tube. It's supplemental nursing system, supplemental nursing system. And it was like a little tiny tube and we'd tape it to his pinky finger and he would give Gage like an extra ounce because we were coming back from two bouts of mastitis and my supply had dropped and I was trying to get it back up and blah, 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 and all his oral tie issues and all these different things. So I really needed Wes. And it was also like my first time being a mom. I really wanted and needed his help with like diaper changes and all those kinds of things. And then um, after that, once the second baby came around, it was like, no, no, no. Like (laughs) you get out of here, you go sleep normal. So you can be a normal person in the day. I got this. So it's just my, the baby and I in the bed and probably she'll sleep in here with me. What I have done with the other babies is about like the first month that they sleep right next to me like this. And then I have a little co-sleeper thing that I might move her to. If I start to feel at some point, what I remember is that like, I feel that my movements in the bed or my noises begin to wake up the baby and disrupt her sleep. So then I kind of like move them to their own space right next to the bed at that point so that we can all get better sleep. But I actually, excuse me, I actually do have hopes and dreams to fully co-sleep with Sunny um, because I really want to nail sideline nursing. And I haven't had that experience with like a baby sleeping fully in the bed. And because she is definitely our last baby, I am wanting that. So I'm going to try to continue to encourage that. And really the only reason it wouldn't work out is if it feels like we're not getting as good of sleep Mm -hmm. as we would be if she was in her own space. Um, So anyways, yeah, that's Great. Right. Did I answer that all the way? I forget. Yep. Yeah, you did great. Okay. Um, okay. So next question, how to handle the restless nights when they can't burp? <sighs> okay. I've had a lot of people writing me on Instagram recently because I've been talking about her reflux situation. And a lot of people are saying, oh my God, that's exactly what happened to my baby. I did not know that this was a thing. Why does no one talk about this? So really quick, in case you're not up to date with that. And really, if you follow me on Instagram, it's the stories following me on my stories and watching those is where you're going to get the most um, benefit from my account because I I talk about things. I go on rants. I share a lot of personal 
experiences. Um, posting is a little bit more of a rare thing for me. So anyways, if you want to really know what's going on, follow me in the stories. But so what's happening for her right now is that her latch is still very weak and disorganized. It's better than it was because she's gotten her lip and tongue tie release, but her suck swallow breathe is really disorganized. Um, she's overall weak in her cheeks and her tongue. And so it doesn't do all the things it should do. And I have a very fast letdown. So that's like when the milk comes out, it's like shooting and spraying out. And I have small breasts too, but I make a lot of milk. So there's, it's like a lot of pressure <laughs> and it just shoots right into the baby's mouth. And in some ways that's nice and it's a blessing. And it, it, it is, it's just in the beginning, it's very tricky because she tries to latch, tries to handle the letdown and drinking the milk, but is just choking and gagging and swallowing so much air. And then she has reflux because now she has all these air bubbles. And even if I'm trying, and I do get some burps out, but it's very difficult. Like she's just hard to get them out. So then she's grunting and moaning and groaning all night long. And it's just like a really hard cycle. So my best advice for that is just to like continue to remind yourself that it's temporary. I was talking about that with my husband this morning. Like I'm so tired of sleeping in like hour and a half long chunks and then hearing her grunt and make all these noises all night long. And I know it will end. It's so hard when you're in the moment and you have to just like keep living through it. And I, I often mm -hmm. try to put myself into a position of imagining like when she's two, because I've had this experience, it's really hard when you're a first time parent because you haven't had this experience yet and you don't really know when it's going to end and it can feel really scary and really hard. But I've had this happen now three other times where I know I will get over it and I will then forget. <laughs> <laughs> and I will look back and go, wait, what did that happen? That wasn't that bad. That's kind of how it always goes. Like even when you yeah. get back on birth. So that I, that's not the greatest advice. I mean, you, you just do everything you can to like, some people will pump off their initial letdown or they'll catch it in a haka or something so that it's a little bit less of like a harsh stream to me that feels all like too much work. So I just don't do it. And I just, I just am keeping working with her and doing her oral exercises and just hoping that one day she like starts to learn and get it. Um, because I know that that is a way that it can go too. So anyway. All right. So we talked about postpartum resting sort of at the beginning, but there's a couple more questions about that. Do you have any help besides your husband? Yeah. Okay. So about this too, my husband works from home and he also is taking time off. So he is doing a little bit of work here and there, but it's not very much. And he is just super involved and awesome. And I've also been telling him for nine months that this is my plan. And so he's, he's a really good uh, person at managing expectations. So he like expects it to be chaotic and expects it to be really hard. And so then when he's living that reality, he is really calm and chill about it. Cause he's like, I knew this would happen. I knew it was going to happen. It's okay. Whereas I get really wigged out about all these things. <laughs> and he's like, Moses, why did you think that it was going to be any different? And I'm like, I don't know. I just thought that it would maybe be better this time. And he's like, no, hun, like this is the way our babies are. You know, he's always given me pep talks. He's a very, he's got a lot of I don't know, optimistic energy in him. So, but also in addition to that, my parents live in town. So my parents have watched our other three kids a couple of different times, or they've come over here and helped a couple of different times. My mother-in-law now who lives in my back in our like little casita in our backyard, she lives half the year in Arizona and half the year here in Idaho. And she just got back into town a couple days ago. So she's been super duper helpful and taking the other kids. That's, that's more what the problem is, is right now is like the other kids. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> so that it's it's managing them more than anything else. So yeah. she's been very helpful. And then, but before that, for the first two weeks, it was more, yeah, my parents helped several times. And then we do have a nanny who is going to college now. So her hours are, you know, cut back a lot, but she was available more than normal. And so we had her for probably like nine hours one week and then maybe five hours the next week or something like that. So we do, it's a combination. It's a lot of different things. Also on our property here, because we live on a family compound, my sister-in-law's parents are here and they took my three kids to like a jump house the other day. So it's nice. a lot of like the village is, is an active concept and idea over here. And we've worked really, really hard to make that happen. I mean, this has been a long plan for many years. Wes and I started planning this in 2014 to have all of wow. the things that we have now. And it started with the tiny house and then we had to buy land and we had to convert the land. We had to do all these things and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, I know that not everybody has that and it's an extreme luxury and I'm very, very grateful for it. Also, my entire life revolves around this, revolves around like motherhood. It's some, it's the thing that I think about the most. It's my hobby. It's my everything. So, you know, other people who are, they work in some kind of other, you know, they work in tech and then they love to mountain bike or something. All of the postpartum stuff is more of like an additional or an afterthought to them where it is literally something I'm talking about all of the time. So it is going to be different for me than it's going to be for a lot of the people, other people. <laughs> so I don't want you to compare to me and be like, why can't I also, it's just, it takes, or you can, you can do it. You can prioritize it. It just takes a lot of energy and time and money and preparing. Like we don't buy a lot of newborn things so that we have the money for the the care and the support later. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay, so you already kind of did the mentally or the five five five. Uh, you talked about getting up to go to the bathroom. Um, how do you not have mom guilt about resting during the postpartum time? Yeah, no, I definitely do, and I've had many <clears throat> crying fits about the loss of my relationship with my other kids during this time, and um, how I miss them, and how I. It was really tricky too because they've they've had a couple of different sicknesses since she's been born. And so I've had to keep her safe and telling them no a lot and don't touch the baby and feeling like I'm sitting back here in this room and I'm not involved in their lives anymore. And then like, it's going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No. So I definitely, I definitely have mom guilt about that. And I also know, again, from experience, it's such a blessing to have more kids because the first time around is just hard in so many different ways. And a lot of people do have easy experiences, but you just don't have the perspective that you have when you have other kids to know what's actually important, what actually matters. And I know that this is the best thing that I can be doing for my family right now, Mm -hmm. actually, is resting and building myself back up so that I'm not a raging biatch to them <laughs> really like I because that is something that I I can struggle with and so resting although I am not as involved and it's sad and I'm I'm inviting them into the room they're coming in I'm not like shunning them away it's just that you know I'll be like you got to go wash your hands or um I I do have my limits though because when they are all in here and I'm trying to nurse and it's been painful And then they're all like talking or they're jumping on the bed. Like sometimes I feel like I'm just like at a maximum capacity of sensory input, you know? Um, But one thing that my lactation consultant 
told me to do because she has eight kids. Can you even imagine? (laughs) (laughs) She was like, section out a time for each of them to come in and you spend like 15 minutes and it's like a consistent thing every day. And I have not implemented Mm -hmm. this yet, but I have in my mind, I keep playing it over and over in my mind. And so then when I have the opportunity, when one of the kids comes in here, I'm really present with them and I'm asking them about their day and what are they doing and what are they thinking about? And like, I tell them that I love them and I miss them and I'm kissing them and I'm hugging them and I'm trying to fill them up with my love in this like very short time. Um, now that I'm two and a half weeks postpartum, I'm, I'm out there more, I'm doing more things, but it's still, it's, it's not like it was. And especially for my just turned three-year-old, you know, she is the one that's the most interested in the baby. So she's in here the most. So I feel like that's a good thing because I worry about her and how much I, you know, she was a baby. And Mm -hmm. so anyway, you know, I definitely struggle with mom guilt and I don't have all the answers with it. It's, it's really hard. It's, you you sometimes feel like you can never win. Like no matter what you do, something is struggling and it's usually you (laughs) (laughs) or, or a relationship that you have. And I, it's hard to split yourself into all these pieces. And I, I don't, I don't know how to do it properly yet. I don't know if I'll ever know how to do it properly. Yeah. I would say the one thing I would say to that is something I've learned in my life is even when we have the perception that we have done something wrong or we're hurting somebody or it's, it's not ideal. We don't know the beauty and the lessons and the growth that can come out of those hard and challenging situations for the other people in our life that maybe they need, or that maybe is going to change their life in a positive way. And like, we want so badly for everyone to always be okay and be like not hurt or not, struggling or not experiencing something. Yet, I think when you talk to most people who've done great things in the world or who have, you know, overcome amazing things, and they can like help the world, there's moments of struggle. Like I'm just for for you and for other women who are maybe struggling with this knowing that like, for example, my mom was very independent person. And I think a lot of people would look at that and be like, oh my gosh, you weren't like present enough or doing all these things, even though she absolutely was. But like my strength, I attribute in a large part to her independence because it, it made me become the person that I am now that I wouldn't have been if my mom was always coddling me and like trying to like, you know, do the things that a lot of parents I think nowadays are trying to do for their kids. And so I'm so grateful for her. And I actually tell her all the time. I'm like, mom, I'm so glad that you had hobbies. I'm so glad that we weren't the center of your world all the time. I'm so glad that like, I got to observe that because like your kids might see, wow, I learned from my mom at a really early age, how important self-care is. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like there's so much like lessons and teaching. Like, even if it seems from your perspective that you're like not present for them, in fact, you might be giving them the biggest gift of all. Oh, I love that. Thanks. <laughs> so I'm going to definitely keep framing my mind that that's what's happening. Yeah, but I, I really see that. Like, Savi maybe is going to step more into her power to, like, become more of a mother figure for Sloan, you know? Like, something that she couldn't do if you were more there. Like, there's just, right. like, you don't know what it's going to do, but I just, I feel that so strongly that, like, you don't even know the gifts that you're giving your children by doing this. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. I love that. And you're right. It is. It's I'm modeling, at least for Gage, who will, will probably remember this the most, modeling what is it 
what's normal? How do we take care of a new mother? You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, so I think it's such a beautiful lesson and, and I think, you know, they're going to learn so much more from the action of you resting than you telling them anything or doing anything that's going to take that into their life forever. So I just like really want to say that to you. It's going to make me cry. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But um, okay. Last question for this episode, uh, a random kind of question. What are kids, husband and visitors doing while you're in the bed phase of resting? Oh yeah. I mean, visitors. So we've been having a, uh, one of my main top tips here, and I know we'll talk about it in part two, but uh, is a meal train. And so really I haven't had visitors that aren't just like dropping off food, but when it's been possible, they've come in and they've, you know, they're my friends or family. And so they're coming in and talking and stuff. And so they just come and they sit on the bed with me. Um, but my husband and kids are out and about doing, they're in the living room, they're at my mother-in-law's house, they're outside, they're at the park, he takes them different places, you know, they're just, they're it's doing like My daughter who comes yes, over. Yes, you are coming I'm over. i add another child to your already <laughs> ginormous mix of children. Your child is my children's favorite thing. It is, I think that they think she's like a toy or so, I don't know I what. Know, like a, baby, have, a live baby doll. Yes, I have never seen them react so strongly to a friend's kid than they do with, <laughs> with Avi. It's so sweet and so cute. They are obsessed with her. So um, yeah, I've, I, and I struggle sometimes because I'm like, I should be out there doing stuff. You know, this is part of the mom guilt too, but I'm just like, no, I'm not. I'm going to sit here and rest because the, even just talking sometimes I have had the experience where like a friend came over to drop off food and then we just started, we were like talking for a little bit too long and it really exhausted me. Um, that was like right in the very beginning. Now that kind of thing doesn't exhaust me anymore, but, um, yeah, so they're just sort of out doing their own thing and I'm trying so hard to like model this of what I do think this is. I think this is right. You know, this is the truth. This is right. This is what should be happening. And all the things are coming up for me. I feel selfish. I feel guilty. I feel bougie and lavish and all sorts of stuff, you know, but, um, my husband isn't making me feel that way. And I am the only one really that's making me feel that way. It's just in my head, you know, and it's in our culture because people feel bougie for resting. And that's why people, we are in a stress epidemic and infertility epidemic and people are so burned out that they're committing suicide and all of the things. I mean, I think what you're doing, you're going against the cultural grain, but you're going with the physiological grain of what is normal. And I think that that is amazing because you're forging a path. And I hope people listening to this are inspired by what you're doing and being like, you know what? I want to do that too, because we need this more in our culture because what we are currently doing is so not working. A hundred percent. I love that. With the cult, with the physiological grain. Let's make t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> we have so many t-shirts. We actually are going to like make t-shirts. I'll write it down. We are one day. Yep. Anyways. Okay. Well, thank we you. Have. We're going to, we're going to wrap this one up and then go on to uh, have a part two where we talk about postpartum nourishment and, and breastfeeding and then kind of like a, a random other section. Cause there were so many questions from the inboxes from Instagram. Yeah. And so we're going to get through them in part two. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the healthy as a mother podcast. In order for others to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple podcasts, subscribe and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. 
And please remember that the ideas and views of this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease. Consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. And remember, a healthier future starts now and it starts with you.